Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening, Judges chapter 4. And we're going to read all of chapter 4. The, the story tonight actually kind of covers chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 would be the story of God's deliverance. And then chapter 5 would be a song of praise that was sung by some of the characters in the story. We'll reference chapter 5 um, at different points this evening, but um, we're going to read all of chapter 4. So beginning in verse number 1, let's read. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron. In twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment, and she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent under the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kedesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Harosheth of the Gentiles under the river Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and ten thousand men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the hosts unto Harasheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. There was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, into me, fear not. And when he had turned unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. 
And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin king of Canaan before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. It's a lot of names, and it's quite a story. But um, like I said just a moment ago, I think there's some principles here that we will, can pull out and will be a help to us. So thank you for standing. You can go ahead and be seated. I think we probably all um, know a person, um, maybe we are that person, um, who simply cannot tell a story to save their life, right? Um, maybe this person um, has to chase down and kill every rabbit on every rabbit trail, and who knows what the rabbit has to do with the story or the punchline, but the rabbit's dead, so good riddance, and we can move on. Um, I tend to be a pretty thorough person, and so I'm probably making fun of myself more than anyone. Um, it can be difficult to tell a story and um, not give too many details. Um, but I think we all know what it is to uh, hear every detail, relevant or not, um, to the detriment of the greater story. But in the case of the biblical writers, they rarely, if ever, have this problem. Um, in fact, they may have the opposite problem. Oftentimes in biblical literature, um, very little detail is given. Characters are introduced right at the moment they enter the story with very little detail given. Scenes, entire battles, and even decades can pass in a moment. Um, and, and we don't even notice hardly as we read. And there's reason for this. The biblical writer is often driving hard at a point. And only the details relevant to this point are given. And as a result, we may wonder uh, about the different details or characters, uh, but in so doing, we can miss the greater point that the author is intentionally trying to make very clear. Um, tonight's story is no different. Characters are introduced in a flash. It's like, where do these people come from? Um, what is their background? And it, oftentimes we don't know. Battles are won in a moment. Shocking events transpire with little commentary on the morality of those events, and we may question why, but none of that is the point. Uh, the book of Judges at a very high level is about a long-suffering, patient God and us, his persistently disobedient and rebellious people. It's about how God works through imperfect vessels to accomplish his purposes and his deliverance. As we read chapter number four, verse number one, we once again find ourselves reading the familiar refrain, and the children of Israel did evil 
again in the sight of the Lord. Um, all throughout the book of Judges, we read this refrain over and over and over again. And it didn't take long in this case. Ehud, the previous judge of Israel, um, had died. And after his leadership ceased, the people returned in short order to the idolatry and behavior that led to their miserable, their miserable bondage to Eglon in the first place. Um, this new episode continues the downward spiral uh, that is outlined over the course of the book of Judges. The nation becomes increasingly destitute and depraved, while even Israel's deliverers, and we call them the judges, become more and more flawed and sinful. So as Israel progressively distanced themselves from Yahweh, and as they became more and more Canaanite-ish, we might say, in their culture and religious practices, their oppression and oppressors became more and more severe. Um, Jabin, uh, the villain of tonight's story, was not some distant king like Kushan Rishathaim, I think I said it right, of um, two cycles previous. So this was the man that the nation was delivered from by Othniel, and he was a king in Mesopotamia, so he was a ruler of a land far away. Um, Jabin, the villain of tonight's story, was not like Eglon, um, the king of Moab, who was closer to Israel, but still a foreigner. Okay? He was still outside of Israel's borders. Um, Jabin, the man we're going to talk about tonight, was a king of Canaan, which is the land that Israel occupied. And he oppressed them from within. And, and his oppressive rule was direct and severe. We get some hint as to the severity of his rule in the victory song found in chapter 5 that I said we'll reference, but we're not going to read this evening. Um, verse number 6 of chapter 5 tells how the highways of Israel were unoccupied during his oppressive rule, um, how the people used unconventional routes likely to avoid being mugged or robbed during time of lawlessness. Verse number 30 of chapter 5 tells of how the captain of Jabin's army, Sisera, and his army were taking their spoil throughout the land of Israel. And this honestly is gross and hard for us to get our heads around in the world we live in. But each man in his army, it says, took a girl or two to satisfy his own lust and perverted pleasures. Um, can you imagine a world where no lady was safe on the streets? And, and this army was just ravaging the nation of Israel, taking what they pleased. Um, the oppression was worse than before, and it was more direct and more severe than anything Israel had experienced up to this point. The captain of Jabin's army, as I mentioned, was named Sisera, and his army, army was intimidating and powerful. Um, Sisera led and commanded 900 chariots made of metal, which it would have been no small foe for a group of people that was primarily agrarian. Um, try to imagine going up an army of tanks with a shovel. Okay, that's what this was like. Um, 900 chariots made of iron. This severe and direct oppression was long-lasting. So for 20 years, Jabin and Sisera ravaged Israel. 
That was longer than the eight years of the king of Mesopotamia, and it was longer than the 18 years of Eglon. So the text is very clear, despite all this taking place, that none of this happened outside of God's control. The nation was experiencing the consequences of their idolatry and sin. Essentially, God was doing nothing more than turning them over to what they seemed to desperately want. Okay, so he says, you want Canaanite idolatry? You want Canaanite culture? Fine, you can have that. And he turns them over to it, and it's nothing but, but oppressive bondage. But he says, that's what you want. You can have it. And he turns them over to it, and they're experiencing the consequences of their actions. God used this experience to drive his people back to himself time and time and time again in desperation. The book of Judges is a long, drawn-out demonstration of God's long-suffering nature and mercy. So this cycle happens again. The people are in bondage, have been for 20 years, and it's, it's violent. And the nation cried out to God in pain as you would expect. In the past, Israel's cries of pain were immediately followed by reference to God sending a deliverer. Um, Chapter number three, verse number nine says, and when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So the people cried out, God raised up a deliverer. Okay, chapter number 3, verse number 15 says, But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gerah. So the people cried out, and God raised up a deliverer. But in this story, immediate reference to a deliverer is not the case. We're introduced to Deborah, a prophetess and judge in Israel. Now this is disconcerting. It's disconcerting because one wonders how a woman is going to be able to deliver Israel, which has no army, out of the hands of an oppressive king whose army has the reputation of abusing women and has 900 iron chariots. Um, This is disconcerting to us even in 2023. Even in our egalitarian culture, most of us agree that there are certain roles that women play that men cannot play well. Um, Case in point in the science household, Brielle, I don't think a single time has come to me for comfort. She always runs to Ashley. Um, But there are also roles that men play that women cannot play well. And I don't think any of us, when we think about a violent warrior overthrowing sexual predators, we don't usually think of a woman, Um, not even in our, our modern culture. But this would have been this tension that we're introduced to would have been even more acute to the ancient reader. Warrior was the role of a man exclusively, and to place a woman in that role would have been laughable. Okay, so we're introduced to this tension. The nation is crying out for a deliverer, and we're next introduced to Deborah. But the question would be, who's going to do the delivering, right? The Bible does not condemn Deborah in her role as judge and prophetess. And in fact, she's quite a hero. However, her place in the story does illustrate just how far 
Israel had come. Israel was so depraved that there were no men to play the role of judge and deliverer, both typically male roles. There was no one to take up the torch. Where were the Caleb's? Where were the Othniel's? Where were the Ehud's? They were nowhere to be found. And this woman were introduced to judged Israel from her place between the towns of Ramah and Bethel. The nation came to her for justice, which apparently could not be found anywhere else. The people would bring their disputes and she would judge what was right. Additionally, as a prophetess, she spoke on behalf of God. And this is what she does in verse number six. She summoned a man named Barak. Now we don't know who this man is, um, what his role was, or where he came from. There's no background, but evidently he was a man of influence and leadership in the nation of Israel. And she spoke to this man on behalf of God. She said, hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Okay, now stop. This was not a suggestion of God's to Barak. This was a command. That was the language Deborah used. She said, hath not God commanded? It was a clear command, and there were only two options, obedience or disobedience. Okay? He had two choices. So she said, hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee to the river of Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. That's the command God spoke through Deborah to Barak. I want to emphasize, the one taking the initiative here is God. God is the one doing the delivering, not Deborah or Barak. God gave the command. In verse number seven, God promised to draw Sisera to the river Kishon, and God promised to deliver Sisera into the hand of Barak. So God's taking the initiative here. And Barak could have been one of the heroes of this story. It would have been simple. Um, God had a purpose that he would accomplish. He said he would. Um, he made that much clear. He said, I'm going to deliver Sisera. God had a purpose that he would accomplish. All Barak had to do was get on board with it. All he had to do was say, sure, sure, I'll do that, God. Um, we already suspect, because of the situation, that there's a huge void in leadership in Israel at this point in history. And our worst fears are confirmed when we read Barak's response. Unlike Israel's past heroes, such as Joshua and Caleb, and men like them who followed God's leadership down to the very last letter, Barak responds to God with a conditional sentence. He says, God, if I'll obey. He has conditions. <clears throat> Barak, Barak's condition was that he have the support of Deborah. Okay, that's what he demanded, the support of a woman. One both admires and is empathetic with Deborah um, in her situation. If the best man God had to work with was Barak and his conditions, no wonder she was in the spot she was in. Um, a tough spot she was in, to be sure. So Deborah agreed to go, 
but she made one thing clear. In his failure to obey unconditionally and in faith by demanding the support of a woman, Barak forfeited the honor that would have been his. God had a purpose that he would accomplish. God, throughout the book of Judges, is a merciful deliverer, okay? And, and he wants to demonstrate that as part of his nature again. Barak could have been a part of that. He, he could have received all the honor that would have been due him. All, all he had to do was get on board with God's purposes and God's mission. But he, instead, he chose conditional obedience and cowardice. Deborah, I want you to go with me. That's what he chose. So Deborah said, because of this, you will be known as a coward. Sisera will not fall into your hands, but in the hands of a woman. She will be the hero. You will be the coward. And she prophesied this. We're led to believe that the woman being referred to is Deborah. Um, but there's another woman to be introduced, and she's an unlikely hero to be sure. So this situation that Israel was in is not a problem for God at all. In fact, it reveals exactly what the book of Judges is trying so hard to reveal about God, and that is His long-suffering and merciful deliverance time and time and time and time again. One commentator said, This prophecy of verse 9, the prophecy given by Deborah, is given beforehand. Hence, no one could say it just happened to turn out that way. Before the event, Yahweh through Deborah clearly declares that Sisera will meet his ends by means of a most unusual agent, though the woman is unnamed. So then, when it occurs, there can be no doubt that it is God's doing. Moreover, the normal expectation would be that Barak, or perhaps some other outstanding warrior, would bag Sisera as his prize. The Sisera will fall by a woman's hand, shatters our human conventions, and breaks all the commandments about the way things should happen. And had he known, would have been embarrassed the life out of Sisera. For nothing was more mortifying than having a woman administer the tout de gras to a warrior. By this unexpected and strange twist, Yahweh leaves this mark upon the occasion and testifies, what we have here is not any run-of-the-mill human situation. So God is the one who is going to do the delivering. So upon receiving Deborah's commandments to accompany him, Barak proceeds to rally the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel. And he rallies an army of 10,000 men, which um, is an impressive feat when you're oppressed by um, a king who has a massive army. To get anyone to follow you in rebellion against him is an impressive feat. Um, but reminding us of his cowardice and lack of confidence, the end of verse 10 tells us that Deborah was holding his hand every step of the way. So at this point, the story is interrupted and we're suddenly introduced to a new character. And his name was Heber the Kenite. This man was a descendant of the father-in-law of Moses. So he would have been connected loosely with the nation of Israel. And this introduction seems sudden and random, um, but its place in the story means that this man would play an important role in what's about to come next. But which role would he play? That's the question. And, and we know the end of the story. If you've grown up in Sunday school, you've heard the story. But for the first-time reader, it wouldn't be clear. Does his identity as a Kenite mean he was on Israel's side 
or does his departure from Kenite territory to northern Israel suggest the possibility that he had defected to the Canaanites? Okay, so it's unclear, but there's this new character, this new variable. So Heber told Sisera that this newly formed Israelite army was at Mount Tabor, led by Barak. So Barak's there with this army of 10,000 Israelites. And Sisera, in response, assembles his army, including all of his 900 chariots that were a part of it, and he marched down to the river Kaishan. Now, this is all happening exactly as God said it would happen. Okay? Um, it's all part of his plan. He's accomplishing his purposes right before our eyes. Deborah points this out to Barak. She says, go up. She said, this is the day God is going to deliver Sisera into your hands. It's, it's happening. It's literally happening right before your eyes. It is not the Lord before you. Okay? She, she says, go up, attack. She's giving a charge to Barak. And so attack Barak did. He swept down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000-man army, and Sisera's army is decisively defeated. And few details are given, but, but they're completely and decisively defeated. Um, the important details are given. Verse 15 makes it clear that God is the one who gave the victory. God is the one who accomplished his purposes. God completely rooted Sisera's army. The chariots and the host were completely decimated with the sword. And so extensive was God's victory that the Bible says there was not a man left. Like they were wiped out at the hand of Barak's army. Now, we're not exactly told how God accomplished this decisive victory. Like I said, there's not a lot of details. Um, but the victory song in chapter 5 does give us some clues. Verse number 4 says, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. Verses 20 and 21 further down say, They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. So it seems that God sent a great storm which caused the river Kishon to overflow its banks. And any kind of mud would have made the chariots useless. So again, this is just a demonstration of God's direct involvement in the victory. This was not the victory of Barak. This was the victory of God over Sisera. Um, and he's the one who brought about the storm that allowed deliverance. So all of this took place and not a man was left. But in the chaos of the battle and the storm, Sisera climbed out of his chariot. This is the commander of the army, the opposing army, and he escaped on foot. And Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, who was the wife of Heber the Kenites, who we were just introduced to. Okay? Um, our worst suspicions about what role she might play in this story are confirmed. Um, when, when we see what the text says next, it says, There was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So Jael was an ally to Sisera, or so he thought. Right? We know the end of the story, but he would have thought so. So when Jael saw Sisera bloodied and exhausted from battle and from running, she called him into her tent. She invited him to come in, and she encouraged him to rest. She was an ally. No doubt, parched from the day's event, can you imagine 
hand-to-hand combat in a thunderstorm for a day. Um, He was exhausted and he was thirsty. And so he asked her for a drink. And instead, she gave him milk, which was indulgent and he no doubt would have seen as an act of fealty. She gave him a place to rest and he commanded her to tell any man that came looking for him that if she had seen him, to say no. And so Jael agreed. And with the milk on his stomach and a warm, safe place to sleep after a violent battle in the rain, he fell fast asleep, exhausted, as you can imagine he was, if you put yourself in his spot. So at this point, the story takes a turn. And again, if you're reading this for the first time, um, it would shatter your expectations. So Jael a woman and the assumed ally of Sisera took a tent spike and a hammer in her hand and she quietly approached Sisera asleep on his side. And she held the tent spike in her left hand and she holds it above his temple and with her right she has the hammer and in one decisive blow she drives it through his head, pinning him to the ground. And what the Bible says next, you know, it's not, there's nothing funny about death, but it's almost comical it says, so he died. The most inglorious end you can possibly imagine. He just experienced it. Can you imagine the scene? So shortly after, Barak, the man who was supposed to do what Jael had already done, approached in pursuit of Sisera. And Jael went out to meet him. And she said, come with me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And she says, I, I know who you're pursuing and I'll lead you to him. So as Barak approaches the tent of Jael, likely with sword drawn, he would have anticipated making the death blow to Sisera um, and, and being heralded and honored as the one who had delivered Israel from her enemies. Okay, in a society in which the warriors were heralded as heroes, and great honor was given to them, he would have anticipated what was about to happen. He's going in with his sword, ready to kill the man who had oppressed Israel for so long. But as he entered the tent, he was disgraced. A woman had already done what he was supposed to do. Sisera was sprawled out, dead, with a nail through his head on the ground. And just as God said through Deborah, Barak would receive no honor as a result of this victory. The honor would go to a willing woman, Jael. Barak would be remembered, as he is to all of us, as a coward. That's how he's remembered, because of his disobedience and his conditions. Verse 23 says that God subdued Jabin on that day. Israel prospered until Jabin, the king of Canaan, was overthrown. And the honor that could have been Barak's was instead Deborah's and Jael's. They were the heroes of the story. Stories like these are simply history. They're things that happened. But as I mentioned earlier, they're also driving hard at a point. And there are a couple of truths that I think we can pull out of the text and make, um, take with us into the rest of the week, this week. First and foremost, this story reveals an aspect of God's nature And it's one I think we can all be very thankful for. God is just, and he lets us experience the consequences of our choices and actions. However, he's also a deliverer. 
And for that, I'm extremely thankful. Um, verses 6 and 7 says, Hath not, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun. And I, okay, God, will draw, draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Verse 14 says, This is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Verse 15 says, And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak. Verse 23 says, So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the children of Israel. Okay, the Lord was the one who sent the storm that washed away the chariots. The, the Lord was the one who de, de, did the delivering. The nation of Israel created the mess they were in. This was all their fault. Okay, they said, we want Canaanite gods. We want Canaanite culture. Um, we want to experience the Canaanite way of life. And God said, fine, you can have it. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, we don't like this. After 20 years of experiencing the nastiness that was Canaanite culture, they said, we don't want anything to do with this oppression. And God came in God took the initiative, and God did the delivering. Uh, God orchestrated their deliverance. Think about this in your own life, as I think about it in mine. He gave us hope when we had none. When, when sin damned us to hell, God provided a way of salvation. When the price had to be paid for our deliverance, He laid down His life. We didn't initiate anything. He did it. When we didn't love Him, He loved us. When we weren't seeking Him, He sought us. He delivered us from eternal bondage, and all of this was His doing. He's, he's a deliverer. He delivers us from sin in the here and now. I shudder to think what I would be without His involvement in my life. Okay, we all have our different vices, but I would be a materialistic person full of lust and pride, but He's delivered me from that. Um, he's delivered me um, from that sin. He delivers me from despair when I'm feeling hopeless. He delivers me from anxiety and gives me peace when I rest in the fact that He's in control. He delivers me from the consequences of my own foolishness when I simply ask Him for wisdom. He delivers me from the misery of trying to make a marriage work without Him. He delivers me from a life that has no purpose. He delivers me from guilt when I find myself returning to the sin time and time again that He saved me from. He's a deliverer. And He does, He initiates the delivering. And I think that point alone, if all we took out of this story, would be enough to go home with tonight and be encouraged. Uh, he's a deliverer. He delivered the nation of Israel time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And it was always their fault. It was never his. But he always initiated the delivering. And how many times could we look at our own lives and see the own deliverance time and time and time and time again? And we can say, thank you, God. Thank you for being a deliverer. Thank you. But there's a second more applicable truth that I think we can also take away this evening. Okay. God is in the business of delivering His people from sin and bondage. That's what, what I just mentioned. And He does so through human agents. Throughout history, throughout the Word of God, then and now, He does so through human agents. However, God is no respecter of persons. He uses available, willing agents and is not at all hesitant to give honor to seemingly lesser vessels. 
That's what he did in this story. Okay, the lesser, the seemingly lesser vessel, everyone would have looked at and thought, she's not the deliverer, she received the honor. And God did not hesitate to use her because she was willing. The New Testament church has a mission. And Eastland Baptist Church, by extension, has a mission. And that mission, we could say it in a word, is deliverance. It's what God's in the business of doing. God, outside these walls, God has commissioned us to take His deliverance to those who have not experienced it. God wants to use you. He wants to use me. And any one of us might be the most qualified person to reach anyone out there, a coworker, a neighbor, okay? We, we encounter these people in our lives every day. We may be the most qualified person, but God doesn't have to use you. He doesn't have to use me. He's gonna do the delivering, but if we don't let him use us, he'll find someone else. Um, he did in this story, and he will in our situation. Within these walls, God intends us to be about the business of deliverance. We're to help the hurting, encourage the downtrodden, rebuke the rebel, exhort the discouraged. In a word, we're supposed to be deliverers, or more properly, we're supposed to be conduits of God's deliverance to other people, okay, through us. God works through us. God wants to use you. He wants to use me to accomplish His work. However, He doesn't have to. He's not limited by us. God uses courageous and obedient vessels. There is no honor in cowardice and disobedience. Imagine being Barak rushing in to deliver the death blow to Israel's oppressor only to find that God chose to use somebody else because you simply failed to boldly obey. God discouraging would that be? I never want God to say of my life, don't worry about it, I found somebody else. You weren't willing, I found somebody else. There's no honor in that. We all have a mission to be about the business of deliverance. God has promised to bring about His deliverance in the lives of people with or without our help. His mission is going to go forward, and He'll find someone who's willing. Let's not forfeit the honor of being part of His deliverance by our unwillingness to take action. Let's get on board with His mission inside these walls and out. There's a lot to be done, and there's a lot of honor to be had. But God will use somebody else. He's going to accomplish His work. Why not get on board with His purpose and with His mission? All right, why don't you stand with me, and we'll pray.